0: Seattle's Morning News, 637. The U.S. and Germany are expected to announce today that we are sending tanks to Ukraine. And Colleen and I asked Congressman Adam Smith, who's on the Senate Armed Services Committee, if he thinks this move is going to get the U.S. too directly involved.
1: No, I don't. I mean, it, tanks aren't that different than the than the missiles or the weapon systems that we've been sending. And, and also, by the way, the other 50 or so countries in the partnership have been sending to Ukraine for quite some time. But look, I mean, that's that's the delicate balance here. And from the start, the, the Biden administration has been a little bit cautious because they didn't want to stumble into that conflict with Russia. And Putin has drawn a ton of red lines, many of which we've stepped over with no consequences over the course of the last almost year now. And what we've learned is Putin doesn't want a direct conflict with the U.S. or NATO either. Um, So we've learned that there is more um, leeway to arm Ukraine so it can defend itself without Russia turning the fight directly against us, a NATO ally, and that's enabled us to provide more weapons with a greater sense of security that that wider conflict will not kick
2: off. I understand wanting to take this conflict day by day. But, you know, given your extensive work with the Pentagon and on the House Armed Services Committee, where do you see this conflict eventually ending? Is it uh, years away? Is it months away? And how do we resolve this?
1: We don't know for sure. It's the first upfront honest answer. But where it stands right now, I mean, the good news in the Friday news: the Ukrainians proved to be vastly more capable than anyone expected. Wow. So Ukraine has been able to defend itself, protect its territory, and in some cases take back territory to a greater degree than expected, and that puts us in a position uh, to potentially end this conflict. The bad news is Putin and Russia have decided that they don't care about the cost. They're just going to keep throwing more and more Russians into this fight. Untrained Russians, Russians taken out of prison, picked up off the streets. And that is prolonging the conflict because Putin has not yet given up on his maximalist goal of essentially erasing Ukraine from the map and making it part of Russia. Mm -hmm. Now, our plan is to help Ukraine convince Putin that that's not going to happen. And that's going to play out between now and June, July time frame. Once we get to the spring and we see how the Russian offensive in the east plays out, and how the Ukrainian planned counteroffensive in a variety of different places plays out. Right now, Putin doesn't want to negotiate. He wants it all, and he's still thinking he can get it. I think he's going to learn in the next six months that he can't. And that's when a lot of the efforts, and we are having discussions with Russia and Ukraine, about where this ultimately ends. It ultimately ends in a peace deal.
0: Ninth District Congressman Adam Smith, ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. (laughs) 6.47 Seattle's Morning News. Let's talk Ticketmaster. The
3: issue isn't the Taylor Swift crash per se.
0: Al Nuzzo from the James Madison Institute testifying before a Senate committee yesterday.
3: That merely revealed how a lack of competition over time has corroded innovation and distorted the market.
0: Yesterday's hearing was a direct result of Ticketmaster being unable to handle the bot traffic when tickets for Taylor Swift's tour went on sale last year. Jack Gretzinger found... Uh, founded SeatGeek, which has been trying to compete with the ticketmaster Live Nation Colossus.
4: Live Nation controls the most popular entertainers in the world, routes most of the large tours, operates the savings systems, and even owns many of the venues. This power over the entire live entertainment industry allows Live Nation to maintain its monopolistic influence over the primary ticketing market. As long as Live Nation remains both the dominant concert promoter and Ticketer of major venues in the U.S., the industry will continue to lack competition and struggle. As discussed, Live Nation Entertainment is the product of the 2010 merger of Ticketmaster and Live Nation. And as was also mentioned, they entered into a consent decree, which banned Ticketmaster from threatening or retaliating against venues by withholding Live Nation concerts. That did not work. It has not worked at all. The DOJ's 2009 investigation confirmed that Live Nation had violated the consent decree repeatedly almost since its inception. The DOJ identified numerous examples of Live Nation threatening and retaliating against venues it did not contract with Ticketmaster
0: so basically that's what competitors say is unfair about Ticketmaster. they're so big they can lock up venues they're trying to sign contracts with venues now for ten years. They control the concerts and they control the ticket sales for those concerts. So what could interrupt this colossus? What about the artists the Ticketmaster is supposed to partner with? Well, there was an artist yesterday's hearing. his name is Clyde Lawrence. And he laid out his experience with Ticketmaster.
5: Let's imagine we just played a sold-out show at a venue Live Nation owns and operates. When an artist plays these venues, they're required to use Live Nation as the promoter. Far from simply advertising, the promoter coordinates and pays the upfront costs to put together a concert, such as renting and staffing a venue and striking a deal with the performer. Since both our pay and theirs is a share of the show's profits, we should be true partners aligned in our incentives. Keep costs low while ensuring the best fan experience. But with Live Nation not only acting as the promoter, but also as the owner and or operator of the venue, it seriously complicates these incentives. At the end of the show, costs will have eaten into most of the money made that evening, and due to Live Nation's control across the industry, we have practically no leverage in negotiating them. If they want to take 10% of the revenues and call it a facility fee, they can and have. If they want to charge $30,000 for the house nut, they can and have. And if they want to charge us $250 for a stack of 10 clean towels, they can and have. Once these costs, some of which went to Live Nation subsidiaries, are taken into account, the remainder is split between Live Nation and the band. In a world where the promoter and the venue are not affiliated with each other, we can trust that the promoter will look to get the best deal from the venue. However, in this case, the promoter and the venue are part of the same corporate entity. So these line items are essentially Live Nation negotiating to pay itself. Does that seem fair? The tickets were listed at $30 and our pay ended up shaking out to about $12 of each ticket. But in this hypothetical show, the fan did not pay $30 for that ticket. The fan paid $42 because Ticketmaster tacked on a 40% fee. And for the record, we've had them go as high as 82%. As with promotion, if an artist plays at a Live Nation venue, the artist has no choice but to have the show ticketed by Ticketmaster. And to be clear, we have absolutely zero say or visibility in how much these fees will be. We find out the same way as everyone else by logging on to Ticketmaster once the show already goes on sale. And in case you're wondering, no, we the artists do not get a cent of that fee. So of the $42 a fan spent on a ticket, we receive 12. But whereas Live Nation's costs were already covered at this point in the calculation, we still need to pay for our touring costs. In our case, roughly 50% of our earnings is used to cover expenses. So that leaves us with $6 for an eight-piece band, pre-tax, and we also have to pay our own health insurance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was amazed by that when I heard that testimony. So $40 ticket, the, uh, the whole band gets $6 per ticket, which they have to uh, split, and that doesn't pay for their health insurance. Now, I'd never heard of Clyde Lawrence. I'm going to have more to say about this in the commentary this morning, but um, here's some of Clyde's music. His group is called Lawrence.
5: <laughs> Burning my ears.
0: Not about you is the name of the song. By the way, for his part, Live Nation president and CFO Joe Burktold did say. We
1: apologize to the fans. We apologize to Miss Swift. We need to do better, and we will do better.
0: In Olympia, Democrats want to enshrine the right to an abortion into the state constitution by passing an amendment. But it appears that is not going to happen. And there is also a move to get rid of that nine-tenths of a gallon that we pay at the pump unless you drive an all-electric vehicle. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich to discuss both of these. First, the constitutional Amendment. This is something that uh, the governor wants to do, and you'd think with Democrats in the majority they could pull it off, but apparently not.
3: Well, it's a very simple argument here. Uh, you need two-thirds of majority in the House and Senate to pass the constitutional amendment onto the voters so they can do it in November, but they may not just have the votes. So uh, you maybe heard about that in the top-of-the-hour newscast there, a the story I wrote up. Um, but I wanted to kind of talk about what was going on behind the scenes yesterday. It was a big day for the Democrats. They had a rally on the Capitol steps talking about protecting the right to choose in this state. Uh, but just the, the basics are that we've had the right to choose in this state for 52 years. Uh, the the, uh, the law was passed in 1970 protecting that, that uh, option. Um, 63% of the people in a poll prior to the elections last year said they oppose the overturning of Roe, Roe v. Wade. So it's pretty much solid in this state that abortion rights are going to be protected. And that's what came up during the hearing when Governor Inslee testified in front of a Senate committee and then Republican Senator Ann Rivers stared him down and accused him basically just grandstanding and fear
2: The law is settled here. And look at the makeup of the legislature and the makeup of our Supreme Court. Political theater aside, I don't see any world in which Washington state changes course on this issue. I would hope that we could all stop the fear-mongering of women losing the right to choose.
3: And she talked about what world do we have that? And the governor kind of sat there and then this was his response.
6: Well, I am a little flummoxed by your question. I'm trying to say this in a respectful way. What world are you living in? There is a party in our state that wakes up every single morning trying to take away this right from women and unfortunately in multiple states they have done so effectively and and what we all assumed was a fixed star in the constellation of the roe versus wade decision was yanked out from women because
0: of one election cycle isn't it true that uh, hasn't the national republican party now in fact switched the uh, the focus of their anti-abortion campaign to individual states
3: Yes, you're correct on that, and I think uh, you know the Republicans are basically seeing the, the tea leaves that a majority of the nation is leaning toward, you know, a woman's right to choose, and just kind of reacting to the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, so, so you have that. But you know, the governor. I just want to play one more thing for for you, Dave. The governor kept on talking, and he, as he talks, he gets more agitated. And when he gets agitated, he comes up with what people call J-isms.
6: To me, it's it's sort of like you got a couple bank robbers outside of the bank ready to break in and say, "Don't worry about us." If you do believe it should be a right, why not put it in the Constitution? That's the question that I would ask.
3: And that's a fair question. And but then again, Ann Rivers has a fair counter that you know why 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 do we have to do all this and i think it really comes down to is showing um, the public if they put it to a, f- a vote on the floor of the house and senate you know who's going to vote against it so right now the democratic leaders in both the house and senate expect the bill this uh, uh, this measure to put it on the ballot for a constitutional vote uh, we'll pass the committees, but Democratic State Senator uh, Annie Billing, who is the Senate Majority Leader, says there just won't be the votes to pass the two-thirds.
1: I think it's highly unlikely that we would have the votes to pass it on the floor. Our colleagues on the other side of the aisle have been uh, really clear in that they are anti-choice.
0: Well, I think the Democrats are obviously doing this because they want to see which Republicans would right. actually vote not to have this constitutional amendment. The implication being that they, if they were ever to uh, uh, get into power, might in fact change the law on abortion in this state.
3: Yeah. So right now, there are actually three bills uh, in the Senate that kind of undermine that right right now. They're, mo- they're 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 waiting to get a hearing. They may not ever get a hearing. There's nothing like it in the House. Every legislative session, there's always some measure to undermine the current law about abortion in the state. And so mm-hmm. there's three of them right now in the Senate, none in the House. So, um, you know. Pick your poison. You know, it was, is this Governor right or is Ann Rivers right?
0: Yeah. So is that you're saying that there there are members of the legislature who are actively trying to get a uh, overturn the state's uh, protection of abortion rights.
3: Correct. Correct. You right. know, in, in different forms, they're trying to chip away at it. Well, the Democrats right now are. Uh, passing trying to pass legislation that protects the doctors if a person comes to the state and take an abortion. Uh, there's so there's more measures like that in the Senate and the House, and those most likely will get hearings. Okay, gas prices, yeah, how about that? You know, uh, you talked about it that nine tenths Mm -hmm. of a cent that we've experienced since I was a kid. You know, I don't know how those mechanical gas pumps figure out nine tenths of a cent. But very State- very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the old ones. Uh, Democratic State Senator Tom Hunt is the bill's sponsor. You know, there are sometimes things that happen that just keep digging on you. I don't know of anything you can buy for 0. 0.9 cents. Yeah, I don't know about that. So I did a quick math. You know, the, the, they estimate every year there's 3.9 billion gallons of gas pumped. Uh, every year in this state. Now, if I did some simple math at one-tenth of a cent, that's supposedly what we don't have to pay because we're only paying nine-tenths of a cent. That comes out to $390 million That's you're assuming goes to the gas company because they basically would assume you're rounding up. So the bill that he's presenting is that get, get rid of the nine-tenths. We are now going to round to the nearest whole cent. Um, and forget about the four-tenths or nine-tenths. And, and basically, he's saying this just is a common sense thing, uh, so that you could be transparent with the consumer and actually have the price be truthfully what it is. And I threatened to do this for a number of years. I finally said, let's roll it out and see what happens.
0: Okay. So, so are they going to round it up? Or are they going to round it down?
3: Well, the nearest whole cent. You do your math. So they're going to round it up. Or Yeah, you're going to. They're going to round it up. And and the thing is that you would think, okay, the oil company is going to testify against this because they've been kind of short-changing the consumer, if you think about it, one-tenth of a cent for every gallon. Well, they didn't show up. Nobody spoke on behalf for or against this in the hearing. Well, I always thought that,
0: I didn't think that was a revenue issue. I thought there were psychological tests indicating that prices that end in nine just sound cheaper.
3: Correct. Yeah. You're exactly right. Uh, $3.49 uh, a gallon. Everything is nine. Yeah, everything is <laughs> <everything's> <laughs> not. So so, so if it doesn't sound like he's getting any uh, opposition to this, and it's very simple to understand. How about that? And, and they just want the, the oil companies and gas stations to fix their computers so it can really yeah. properly price everything. And what will
0: gas stations with reader boards do with all the leftover nines? That's my question. <laughs> Maybe they'll turn them into sixes. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Matt.
2: daily dose of kindness it's brought to you by heritage homecraft compassion love kindness just three of the things a kentucky high school student showed his classmate in an unexpected way winston lee is a u.s history teacher at blechard county central high school when mr lee was grading tests he tells wlex tv something stopped him in his tracks
1: i read it and of course it had asked that If I could give his five points that he had earned on the day before to
4: a student that had scored the lowest.
2: It was all the student, Brandon Caudill's, idea. Because
4: There's a lot of dates and locations and times and a lot of things that's hard for some people to remember because I used to struggle pretty hard. So I, I
0: felt for him and I was like, well, let's see if he'll give them the bonus points. So I put the little asterisks
1: on the note. Well, for me to read that, um, coming from one of our students from our school in our community, um, it just melted my heart, you know. And I was like, man, I have to, I have to brag about this.
2: Mr. Lee posted the kind act on Facebook, thinking just his family would enjoy the story, but it got thousands of comments and shares. I have to let
1: people know that. There are kind hearts in, in this generation and, and with this class and school and, uh, you know, compassion and kindness are still
0: out there. I just wanted to help someone out that day. It didn't matter who they were or,
2: like, why they were, you know, not doing too good that day on that test or whatever. I just wanted to help someone out. That's a really great team building activity, too, for classmates is, okay, I have an extra credit question. It's worth one point. You can choose to keep that point. Or you can donate it to somebody who has the lowest score.
0: Okay. I kind of like it. Okay. But the purpose of the test is to see who is understanding the material, right? Well, sure.
2: But there's okay. extra credit, right? That's why it would be an extra credit point. But it's
0: point. your... Okay. Well, it's still a kind thing to do.
2: Yeah. It would give somebody the confidence to maybe try harder next time. Maybe.
0: Chris, what's your?
2: <laughs> You'd be a mean teacher, Dave. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean,
0: I don't know the whole purpose of scores is to tell you if you're, you know, need help.
2: You I think we've gone over this before. Tests yeah. aren't always an indicator of yeah, knowledge. Yeah. Okay. All okay. right? Okay.
0: 749 from Jennifer
6: show. G Scott. My favorite part of the morning is better than grits, baby. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Why not?
2: I'm so hungry right now. That's so good. Do you put sugar? No. And your grits? I put butter and salt with fried egg and bacon and... Well, look at you. I know. The question Ross, is... Do you, you
0: put sugar in your grits? I don't have grits.
6: He
2: doesn't have grits. Oh, no. No,
6: no I don't. And I judge anyone that puts sugar in a grits. To me, it's a savory dish,
2: not a sweet dish. <laughs> it's
6: cream of wheat.
2: Yeah, go cream of wheat, some, wheat is for sugar. Yeah. Brown sugar. Some,
6: oh, Go get some some, some sugar, sugar cereal. <laughs> grits. Look, the question here is, do you tip
0: the person who makes
6: your grits?
2: <laughs> do you tip the person who makes... Depends on how okay. they make them. You know...
6: I see. I... I People kind of get mad at me, but you got to hear me out first on the whole tipping thing. Go ahead. First of all, I am a great tipper. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Very good tipper. But tipping culture is dumb and it needs to be done away with. I am tired of the United States of America subsidizing the income of the employees at restaurants or wherever else that you're tipping. Just pay them more. Mm. Oh, and then there's the, but gee, if you take away tipping, then you're going to, they're going to charge you more for your burger. Good. Yeah. Good.
2: Yeah.
6: good. Yeah. And, and 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 now, now we have an opportunity to go and it's, well, what if they don't get good service? Then the business isn't going to last then long. Come back. Then you won't come back. Like mm. it's not rocket science. What Let's if stop? the burger
2: is not good? Then your restaurant's going to close. You better have good burgers if you're going to charge that much, but don't make me tip. Exactly. Yeah. So, Didn't well, we? I,
0: I thought we had settled this back when they were raising the minimum wage, and some restaurants said, uh, "Okay, we we will pay people what they deserve, and that will raise the prices, and you won't have to tip."
6: Didn't no, some restaurants they forced do that?
2: service charges is what they did, which is essentially a forced tip.
6: There's a there's a place down in Milton that had a service charge on me. Here's this is my thing. If you Charge me any type of service fee charge, I'm never coming back to
0: your restaurant again. Mm. So, so, you want I'm, it to be an all-inclusive no, all inclusive no, check. You no, want the menu to include everything that you own, not be, tax something I, on after. I want it to be
6: everything. So, if you go and buy a pair of pants at the department store, you pay the price is oh, I get a good deal on some pants. Yeah. It's forty nine ninety nine dollars We tax and everything comes out to this. Right. I pay it, I leave. You don't pay and then have to tip the person yeah. right there in front of or you. Well,
0: because the planet has pockets. Yeah, <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. 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 When, when, why do we tip certain people and not others? That, that's also the argument, too, is who gets to decide who yeah. is tipped?
0: Exactly. Yeah. What about the checkout cashier at the grocery store?
2: Yeah, right? Why, why they should bag they your groceries. Bagger. They sometimes wheel them out to your car and exactly. wheel the car back. That's now, worth a tip.
6: Now, don't get me wrong. Again, how I started this, I started this by saying You're good I am a good tipper. So, for an example, when I go out of town, I get ready, I go to a hotel. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I got $5 bills, y'all. Mm-hmm. Stacked. Anytime I ask somebody a question, hey, $5, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. I give the little tips. Why? Selfishly speaking, it makes my hotel stay that <laughs> right. much better. Right. They all know my name. Yeah. And, and, and yes, I tip housekeeping. Right? I I tip housekeeping. For some reason, you get extra anything you want (laughs) when you take care of the folks. So, again, I am a. Guys, I'm a good tipper. I like to tip because. Selfishly, I want good service. When I come back, I want you
0: to know my name. I want all of that. What about that deficit, when you go to hotels, what what about that they have a facility fee now? At one point they had like an energy fee or an yeah. amenity, an amenities fee. What does that mean? There's <laughs> a bed in the room? I don't go, care. I just yeah. pay it. You just pay it. I, I,
6: when, when, look, when, I, when I go to hotels, because if there's one thing that I've learned in my life, every time I've tried to go cheap on a hotel, it always backfires. <laughs> I remember
2: in, in any time, you know, when I was last in Europe and then like 10 years ago I was there, I tried to, you know, it's like automatic to tip like a taxi driver and all that stuff and they're like I remember one guy saying, oh, "You Americans, you just throw money at things." And it was like Oh my gosh, that's such an interesting perspective that we're just throwing. He's like, it's so dumb. You guys just throw your cash at people. Keep your Mm. money. He refused to take my tip. And another thing, Mm. I noticed something tricky the other day because you know how when now with those like electronic, you know, they turn the screen at you and it's time to tip and sign. Mm. So usually it's like, what do you want? 10%, 18%, 20, 25. They reversed it. So 25 was first and I almost pressed the 25%, just automatically thinking it was like the 15. And I was like, hold on a second. What are we doing here? Mm. You know, you got to watch out for that because it was not a 25 percent service. Yeah. Let me let me tell you that much. Plus, I feel like a baller when I'm <laughs> hey, <laughs> t- take t- take this five dollar bill. <laughs> now, bartenders, would you tip You're bartenders?
6: A now. Uh, oh, when you first go into the bar, yeah. the bartender. Yeah. Go ahead and see what happens if you give that bartender uh, a 50 or 100 dollar bill.
2: Yeah. Oh, to start the they'll night. They'll give you a bunch of ones back. No, no, no. <laughs> you,
6: you, you, it's going to be a weird thing that for some reason every time you walk up you get your drink
2: first. Oh, I see. Well, there's mandatory tipping still. Yeah. The Inner 9 o'clock
0: on Cairo News Radio. About this time yesterday morning, we were reporting on the two mass shootings in California and word came in from Yakima police that they had a mass shooting suspect on the run. Colleen has the
2: update. That's right. Yakima police said three people were dead at a gas station there and the suspect, they said, entered that storm began shooting. They said it appeared to be random, just a guy with a gun out to kill. That guy was now on the run. We sent our reporter, Catherine Stone, down there, and as we did, word came down, police had a home surrounded. But it would turn out the suspect was not in there. However, it was his parents' house. Instead, they got a 911 call from a woman who said a man outside of a Target store had been pacing back and forth in the parking lot and then asked to borrow her phone and overheard him on the phone with his mother confessing to the murders. You
4: get a 911 call that says that the suspect had borrowed a woman's phone. He then called his mother and he made several incriminating statements, including I killed those people.
2: Before police could get to the target, the suspect died by suicide. They say he had a handgun and an abundance of ammunition with him when they found the body. He,
4: The suspect uh, apparently shot and killed himself, and that was prior to officer's arrival. There were officers who heard the shots, but no one
2: saw him actually do that. That is Police Chief Matt Murray. Police identify him as 21-year-old Jared Haddock of Yakima County. They have not figured out why he went on a shooting rampage at the convenience store as he didn't take anything or demand money. However, according to the Yakima Herald Republic, the mother was assisting officers in identifying him based on the surveillance video at the convenience store and told them he was a meth user for the last three years and that the habit had gotten worse in the last month. She told officers officers, he was acting, quote, crazy and had a black handgun and two long guns, including an AK-47 style rifle. The victims in this identified as 54-year-old Jeffrey Howlett, 40-year-old Nikki Godfrey and 65-year-old Roy Nob Jr. They are going to be doing a toxicology test on the suspect's body to find out if he had drugs in his system at the time. And I'm sure we haven't heard the last of this case.
0: Seattle's morning news. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Seattle voters on Valentine's Day will get a chance to vote for an initiative that would establish a new type of public housing called social housing. And one of the leaders of this effort is Tiffany McCoy, who's the advocacy director of Real Change News. And we talked last April about this. You've been trying to get this on the ballot uh, earlier, so you finally got on the ballot. Explain how how this kind of housing is different than, for example, the kind of low-cost housing that the Seattle Housing Authority uh, would build.
7: Thank you for having me on this morning as well to talk about Initiative 135. Um, how this initiative would differ from the Seattle Housing Authority is we would not be dependent upon the what the federal government finances for affordable housing in order to operate. Uh, we would not be dependent on uh, Section 8, Section 9 or the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. So that's a a big difference. And then I would say the other large difference is that this housing would be available to those making between zero to 120% of the area median income, whereas current affordable housing developers uh, cannot have folks that are usually above 60% of the area median income, sometimes 80%. And we're talking about school teachers, educators, nurses, bus drivers, architects that are also being priced out of the city. So it's about making sure that folks that are working in this city still Mm -hmm. have the opportunity to live in this city and not have to move.
0: So this includes middle-class housing too, not just Mm low-income
7: housing. Exactly.
0: When you look at the uh, similar projects in uh, Europe, for example, uh, Britain has a system of, they call it council housing there. It's very affordable but there's also a huge waiting list. There are like a million people on the waiting list. How, how would you avoid that with this program?
7: So I'm going to be like very real. I, I am not a politician. Um, so I could promise that that would not happen in this instance. But I don't want to do that. I wanna like be very real with listeners and with voters. That could happen here if there isn't the political will to either fund this or there isn't the political will to stand up this sort of housing across the city. Uh, If we only do uh, like a couple units here and there, a thousand one year, a thousand the next, there will be those long wait lists. So this is really gonna be a question for uh, city leaders on whether or not they want to invest in this housing, prioritize this housing, and make sure that there is housing available to everyone in that income spectrum that I previously laid out.
0: Are there are there any projects of this kind uh, anywhere in the country where you can say we have we have real world experience with this?
7: Yes. In Montgomery County, Maryland, through their Housing Opportunities Commission, they do social housing. They actually don't call it social housing. Um, They came about the idea rather just organically. They saw the restrictions that the federal government financing puts on to housing developments. They realized, what if we have some of our portfolio that just has higher income residents and those folks are cross subsidizing the lower And they're building thousands of units a year of this type of housing right now. And I would say, too, for your listeners, that these are very equitable uh, economies, Seattle and Montgomery County, Maryland.
0: I see. Okay, so for for people who aren't familiar with the way these other programs work, because it gets kind of complicated. You're saying there are already federal programs which which pay private developers to provide housing for low income people, right?
7: Yeah, private and I would say public as well. Like you have current public developers in Seattle, community roots, et cetera, that are more publicly operated. So not just solely private, mm-hmm. but they are all. But they market-
0: build projects. They build projects which are s- specifically tailored to have a certain percentage of low income residents of under these federal programs, right? Yes. OK, so how come those programs haven't worked and, and you feel that yours will work better? Well, what's the difference here?
7: Yeah, great question. And I think the critical difference is that those programs that you're listing out all depend on how much money every year in the budget the federal government puts towards those programs we've enumerated. Mm -hmm. Whereas with social housing and I-135, we are not going to be dependent on what the federal government funds every year. Money will come from revenue and then municipal bonds on future rents and then also talking about that cross subsidization because we can have higher income residents into these buildings and they're paying more Um, you're able to cover the costs and expenses of each of the housing units
0: okay so you're saying once these projects are built they can support themselves
7: yeah, I am saying that um, I'm saying that we can show that through a couple of uh, pro formas and it's all about it's just really all about the makeup of the, the unit. So we took the station apartment on Capitol Hill that was built a couple of years ago. It's a one hundred and ten unit building. So really what the developer will decide under I-135 is here's this hundred ten unit building. These are our costs every month that we have to meet. Now, how can we break down the rental income range in this building to meet those expenses? That's how this pencils and this is that's how it's also um, getting into like rent reduced stability as well.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, so these are so that's another thing to, to bring up. You talked about uh, being near a transit station. These projects are designed to be within walking distance of light rails. So you don't need to have a car if you don't if you can't afford one.
7: I mean, yeah, that's definitely the ideal. Um, These would be able to be wherever the current city of Seattle allows uh, for multifamily housing to be. Um, That's not a lot of areas of the city. So that's definitely something that needs to be addressed as well if we're very serious about addressing our housing affordability crisis.
0: Yeah. And can you say, uh, assuming this passes, when your first project would open and how many people it would house?
7: So I imagine in the first few years that this will be the developer will be likely acquiring buildings first. So buying up housing that's going to be sold on the private market or that current nonprofit developers can't uh, afford to take care of anymore. So I don't have hard numbers, um, again, because there's so much in flux. And I just want to be very honest with the public that. This is also going to take convincing, like, all new council members of the need and and the efficacy and getting funding behind it. But Real Change, who's the backer of the initiative, is deeply committed to this long-term project.
0: Tiffany McCoy, Advocacy Director for Real Change News on Initiative 135, which would uh, set up a social housing program in the city of Seattle. Election Day is Valentine's Day, so easy to remember, February 14th. (laughs) Tiffany, thank you very much.
7: Thank you so much. appreciate
0: it. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross.
2: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here.
0: And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.